0: In the book of Ephesians this morning, ah. <laughs> got an interesting long title, The Will, the Work, and the Witness. There's a great uh, progression in Ephesians chapter one. We're not going to get through the whole thing this morning. Yeah, yeah, I know. Big surprise. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, as a matter of fact, as I'm studying, you guys, just a little insight. I've got like 14 verses in my outline and on my slides and all that. And as I study, I'm pulling slides off the bottom, deleting, 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 deleting until until I've got six. (laughs) So yeah, we're not going to get through the whole thing, but the way that this lays out is amazing. We're going to go through the introduction. Uh, and, and all, and, and then we're gonna get into verses 3 through 14, where the apostle Paul essentially sucks in a great big deep breath, and it's one sentence in the original language. It's broken into different sentences in English, but it's one sentence. And it's called a doxology, we'll get into that. But as he goes through this, there, it breaks into three sections very obviously, and, and talks about the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. And it also goes in progression, past, present, and future. I love the way, I mean, God had to do this because I didn't need to outline it. It's outlined, and and I love the way that it breaks down. So we'll get into that. First, looking briefly at last week, we looked at the history of this church where Paul, on his second missionary journey, went out and, and he had, had been around the Roman Empire and he ended up in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them? They were the couple that he'd met in Rome or in Corinth and then he came back over. They ended up in Rome later on. But uh, And he came and, and he planted this church. But he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem because there was a feast that he needed to be at. He had probably made arrangements ahead of time and all. And so he left Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus, a, a very large town, quarter million plus people, uh, in the Roman Empire. It was actually, uh, on the western edge of what we call Turkey today. It was in a province called Asia. Now, back then, Asia was not a continent. I mean, it was, but it wasn't called a continent. It was called a province. All right. And it was, uh, it was in, in Asia Minor. And, and again, the, 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 province of Asia was roughly where the nation of Turkey is today. So just so you understand, when we're talking about Asia, that's not all of Asia, you know, all the way out, uh, but it's it's that area, uh, part of the Roman Empire. So he goes back to Jerusalem and then he does his deal there. He ends up in Antioch and then he takes off and he goes across the top, doesn't go by sea this time, by the Mediterranean Sea. He goes back across the top on his third missionary journey and that's where he comes to Ephesus, and we looked at it last week where he spends three years there. Two of those years, he was at the school of Tyrannus, uh, which was a, a, a marvelous thing. It was like he, they kind of gave him the, the left foot of fellowship <laughs> at the synagogue, and, and so he decided that it was better for them to set up housekeeping and, and set up shop uh, at the school and and there they were training teaching and training and teaching and training sending people out It says that the Word of God was getting out to all of Asia at that point, and, and so marvelous things taking place. Uh, remember we talked about the demon possessed guy that uh, some of the charlatans of the day were trying to cast out demons by the power of Paul, they weren't even believers. And and we looked at that. You can't make God's power into a parlor trick. And so we went through all of that. Well, Paul, there's a big riot in the city at the theater of Ephesus and all. And and the city clerk gets up there and basically says, if you've got a problem, sue them. Uh, Otherwise, go home. And and they do. The, The crowd disperses and they're good. So at that point, Paul leaves and he's gone Uh From, at that point, and he goes to the, and he does the rest of his third missionary journey, stops at Miletus on his way back, which is a seaport a few miles south of Ephesus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and they're weeping, says goodbye to them because he knows he won't see them again. And then at that point he goes back, he says, I know that in Jerusalem the chains and tribulation await me, I know that the road ahead is tough. The Holy Spirit has testified of that. And so at that point, he goes back to Israel. He goes back to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He could have gotten off, but he appealed to Caesar. And they were bound at that point, because he was a Roman citizen, to send him to Rome to have his case adjudicated there. So as he's in Rome, in his first imprisonment, he had two imprisonments. One was house arrest for a couple of years in a rented house. Chained to a Roman guard, uh he got to thinking about and was the Holy Spirit's moving on his heart that he needs to write back to this church at Ephesus that he had planted him. Come to love these people. Uh you see that that scene it, I encourage you to read it in Acts chapter twenty, where he's with the elders of this church. And I mean, they are tight. God had done some amazing things in that town and affected a great deal of the empire through it. And so this burden that he has, he writes back, and that's what we see as the book of Ephesians. A letter that Paul writes from jail, well, from house arrest, back to these people. The second imprisonment he would have, uh, we read about it in 2 Timothy, uh, would be where he is actually condemned. He's on death row and he knows that his time is imminent and that at that point uh, and i've stood on the 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 forum steps in rome where they executed him by taking off his head it is very sobering went to the mamertine prison where they held him uh just a cold dark stone cell subterranean and all oh, won't go into that again so that's the background here that's where Because he loved these people, because he had connected with them, because God had used him powerfully, he had come to love them. And he wrote this beautiful, inspired pastoral letter. Now, this is not a pastoral epistle. Some of the the letters in the the New Testament are, are called pastoral epistles, pastoral letters, because they're written to give instruction to leaders. This is a pastoral letter, but it's not because it's written to leaders. It's written by Paul, who at this point... Yes, he has an apostolic ministry, but he has a pastor's heart. And he's writing back to shepherd these people, to give them great instruction. And we benefit because this is one of the most beautiful letters in all of God's word. So as we look at this, as we get started in Ephesians chapter one, verse one, we read Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, interesting. He he talks about Jesus Christ at the beginning of this verse, and then he talks about Christ Jesus at the end of it. Well, there's just some deep mystical meaning there. No, (laughs) it's really, what he's doing is is Jesus is his name, his divine title, Christ, Jesus the Christ is how we would literally render it. And then, so what he does is he says, name, divine title, and then divine title and name. All right, by talking about Christ is Messiah. So Jesus, the Messiah, and then Messiah, Jesus. And and so uh, essentially what's important, it doesn't matter how we arrange those words, but that we recognize the person, Jesus, son of man, son of God, and the work, the work of Messiah, the work of the sent one, the anointed one. And that's what Paul is bringing out here. So he writes to them, as I mentioned, he knows them and, and he's just got this burden to, communicate with this church. And they would know that his essentially two claims to fame, and he wasn't out for fame, but you understand what I mean, is that first he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was, he had an apostolic ministry. The word apostolos is the Greek word for that. And what it means is a special messenger. It means an envoy or an ambassador. Now there are lowercase apostles if we look at that. And and, and again, you could get off into weird stuff on this but essentially, somebody that has, is called to be a missionary has a lowercase apostolic ministry. They're messengers. They're carrying the gospel. Um, this was a common word in the first century. Now, it's an uncommon calling because those who had an apostolic ministry for Christ were ones who were called by him personally. Paul defends that, in Galatians we will get to that in a minute. But let's say that, all right, the Sanhedrin was the ruling body in Israel in the first century, all right? They were the religious creeps, yeah, uh, that put Jesus on the cross and, and all of that. Yeah, creepios, that's the Greek word. Um, no, it's not. But so the point is, is that the Sanhedrin was a ruling body. If they had a matter that they wanted to take action on, because they were a puppet government under Rome, they had a lot of power. There were certain things they couldn't do. I'm not going to get into all that. But if they they had made a decision about something that needed to be carried out, they would call for an apostolos. And that person would have two jobs. Uh, They would be the messenger, the envoy, the ambassador. And they would convey whatever that edict was or whatever the thing was that they were talking about. They would convey it to the persons to whom it was concerned. That was the first job of an apostolos. The second is they would see to it that it was carried out. All right? So it wasn't just a messenger. It was also somebody who would defend it, who would carry it out, who would make sure that it not only got to the people that it was concerning, but that they took it and had appropriate action because of it. All right? So now with Paul having an apostolic ministry, apostolos, He would convey the gospel of Christ to the persons whom it was concerned. We know that his ministry primarily was to Gentiles. And I'm sitting in a room full of them, because if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, okay? That's that's kind of how it works. Uh, And so his, his ministry was primarily to the Gentiles, but he also, if you read Romans 9 through 11, you see that this guy had a heart for his countrymen. He talks about his countrymen. Uh, according to the flesh, and and that was for the Jews. He he had a great burden for them because he knew that God wasn't finished with them as a nation. And we could get into a whole thing on that, but tempted to rabbit trail, I'm not going to. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So anyway, so he's conveying the gospel. That's part of his ministry. And then he was seeing to it that the message of the gospel was accurately and faithfully defended, that it was carried out. And because of that, we see in Acts chapter 9, this is interesting because we see elements of both of these aspects of his apostolic ministry. When Paul was called, remember he got knocked off of his horse on his way to Damascus, and and the Lord spoke to him, supernaturally. He was blinded, and there he is on the ground, and, and the Lord says, Saul, Saul. His name was Saul before it was Paul, before his conversion. Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting these people? But because they were people that belonged to Christ, why are you persecuting me? He then goes into Damascus, and and there's a, a, a guy there that the Lord says, hey, I want you to go and to Lay hands on Paul and, and, and commission him for this apostolic ministry. <laughs> and, and, and Ananias was his name. He says, well, Lord, he's well known and not in a good way. And, and, and God says, wait, I want you to understand something here. He will bear my name. This is Acts chapter 9, 15 and 16. Saul will bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So, He will carry out the message and he will suffer many things for my name's sake. Why? Because he defended the message, because he stood strong in the message of salvation and in God's work that he had commissioned him to do. So both of those are part of the apostolic ministry for these guys in the first century. Paul was definitely called as an apostle, and he fulfilled this calling. Again, uh, it, it, as he was getting near the end, there in Acts chapter twenty that we talked about, he, he talks about that I may finish my race with joy. That which God got a hold of me for in Philippians three, he says, I haven't attained it. I haven't laid hold of it yet. I haven't finished this. But this thing I do, I press on for the high call that, that I haven't. I, I'm, I'm not there yet. And it's a great word for us. We're not there yet. But but we press on. We haven't yet apprehended that for which Christ apprehended us for. And so in that sense, that's part of what we share as a church. Part of his apostolic calling, yes, we're not apostles. And yet as believers, there's great value in that. So he was called an apostle of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he says here in verse 1 is he was an apostle By the will of God. We're talking about God's will this morning. Uh, and and He's essentially over and over again in the New Testament in his letters. He wrote 13 of them, 14 if you count Hebrews, but I'm not going to count it because it doesn't say. Something that he says over and over again is, this isn't something that I did. This is something that God did. The call on my life is something. He was the most unlikely candidate in human terms to be called and commissioned for this great task of carrying the message of Christ to the nations. And yet God in his foreknowledge, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He uses that thing that's least likely to do the work that he wants to accomplish. Why? Because then he gets the glory. Paul couldn't stand in his own glory on this. He used to kill Christians. He used to persecute the church. And yet he knew that he was an apostle by the will of God, not by the will of Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 11 to 16, we read this. Uh, He says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Get this, but it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, predestined him, we're going to talk about that this morning, uh, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul's apostolic ministry, he was called by the will of God. Um, question, where are you by the will of God? Uh, yes, yeah, not, we're not talking about apostolic calling. But we are called. If you belong to him, you have a call on your life. What does that look like? And are you at peace with that? He says to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, the word saints here is set apart ones, holy ones. uh, And essentially this letter is written to the church. It's not written to a bunch of canonized individuals that you make little statues and put on your dashboard or put in a chain around your neck. That's not what a saint is. And I know that, for instance, the Catholic Church, they have this whole canonization process by which they appoint saints. And there's like four or five rules. You have to have this amazing life. Well, first is you can't be a saint. You can't elect yourself. Why? Because you have to be dead for five years. Kind of hard to do that. So the second thing is is that you have to have this amazing life. You have to have at least two miracles that can be attested to. And it was interesting. They appointed a guy. When they were considering sainthood for somebody, they would appoint a guy to find the dirt. Right? Seriously. Seriously. He would do everything he could to undermine the process, not not to trip up the people that were invested, but to find the dirt on somebody, to find out why. You know what he was called? We have a common term that we use. He was called the devil's advocate. Interesting. And so that's, and that's that. That's not this. When he's talking about to the saints who are in Ephesus, he's talking about people just like you and me. He's talking about God's people. He's talking about set apart ones. That's what it means. Saint, the word saint, the Latin word is sanctus, it means holy one or set apart one, one, and we live lives. If we're in right relationship to him, we live lives that are set apart. We know that we are in but not of this world. And so. It's not the special deal, but it's about the faithful. Those who are full of faith is what he means here. So he's talking about the saints who are in Ephesus and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So uh, when we look at that, now there's some... I'm not going to get into a whole deal on manuscripts and all that. There, There... whole thousands of manuscripts that that actually align together there are some early manuscripts that actually leave out the word ephesus this letter is clearly to the to the church at ephesus there's no question about that but i also believe that paul's intent was yes to the saints in ephesus and also to the faithful because his impact the impact that the ministry had there was throughout the whole region of asia and so, when he's talking about that, there's actually two groups. And so, yeah, you're part of the church at Ephesus. That's who this letter's written to. If you're part of the wider group, because these letters got circulated. Obviously, this letter got a lot of traction. Here we are, two thousand years later, and they were circulated among the, the churches and among the regions. Now, like the letter to the Galatians, which is, it's actually, it's like the next province over to the east. Uh, when you read Galatians, that's to a group of churches. It's a larger group that he's writing to. That's possible that that was the intent here. We don't know exactly, but we know that the church at Ephesus had great influence on the region. So, when he talks about that, uh, if you, I think about, I look at, in, in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, the last thing that he said, Uh, before he ascended into heaven was he gave the great commission. He said, you'll be witness of me, witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, interesting how that works because here in Newburgh, this is our Jerusalem. And and perhaps we're reaching out and, and we're having a wider impact in our area. And that would be our Judea. And Samaria, he says Samaria. I love that he says Samaria here because in the first century, that was the bad neighborhood. He's saying, you know, in Newburgh and maybe in Yamhill County and then also downtown Portland, perhaps the homeless, whatever. But But go to the people that you wouldn't think naturally to go to. He includes that. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jerusalem had been Paul's Jerusalem, and then, and for the the original disciples, the the apostles, uh, their influence would have been, it's like if you drop a stone into a pond, and you see that there are ripples, concentric circles that go out from there. That's what the impact of the gospel is. When Paul came to Ephesus, that became his Jerusalem. I'm not saying it was Jerusalem, but I'm saying in that sense, that became his Jerusalem, Asia, was like Judea. It was it was the surrounding area, but a larger area, and then a larger area from that. So um, he had spent three years there, and, and that became his base of operations. He had glorious fruit in that. And, and as he writes back, he's writing to a large group of people. Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says grace and peace, this is charism. And Yeah, the Hebrew word is shalom, but the Greek word is irene. These are commonly known as the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Grace and peace. Uh, They're found in all 13 of Paul's letters. Every one of his letters has this term. And in a couple of them, he says grace, mercy, and peace. The point in this is it's not just a salutation. It's not just formal literary style to use this when you're writing a letter to somebody. There is purpose. There is intention behind it. You can't know the peace of God unless you've had an encounter with the grace of God. It's not possible. Uh, Paul in Philippians 4 talks about the peace that passes understanding. He's talking to Christians and if you are in a place in your life where you don't have peace, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian, but it does mean that you don't have as good a grasp on God's grace as you could have. To understand His grace is absolutely essential to having peace. And, and they're always in that order when they're presented in the New Testament. Uh, you could look at the acronym GRACE as God's Riches at Christ's expense, all right? Uh, And this chapter really lays that out. If you want to look at what the definition of grace is, yeah, of course, the common understanding is it's unmerited favor. But a little bit, expanded a little bit on that, we're not going to go deeply into grace this morning. There's a lot more about grace beginning in verse 7, which will be next week, and then on into chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, Wonderful, marvelous passage, and we'll cover that thoroughly when we get there. But grace defined is that which God does for you through his son, which you cannot earn, you do not deserve, and will never merit. Okay? You literally, virtually can't get there from here when it comes to having a relationship with God through Christ. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. He is saying there's two ways to get to heaven. Theoretically, not practically. You either have to be perfect in every conceivable way as relates to infinity because that's how God is, or you have to come under the grace of God and the work that Christ accomplished on your behalf. That's what grace is. He smiles upon us. He extends grace to us. The work of the cross is his manifestation of grace to man. We don't deserve it. We don't I don't get it. But I'll take it. Because that's the way that he implemented for man to come into right relationship with him. You can be a Christian and not have peace. We're going to talk about that as we go. Um The Greek word for Irene, the Greek word is Irene, but it, what it means is it means to bring things together, to be settled. It's it's talking about an attitude of the heart. It, it, it's the opposite of being fractured. Have you ever had events, things going on in your life where you, you just feel fractured? You feel like it's in disarray. It, it's just a mess. This piece that he's talking about is the opposite of that. And it breaks my heart. When I see Christians struggle, and we all struggle at times, folks, we all do. The beauty of his grace is that's not impacted. His grace is still there. He doesn't pull it back. If I blow it, if I sin, he doesn't say, ah, shame on you, you're out. No, the beauty of his grace is that I can have a settled peace in the middle of really difficult circumstances. I will never forget when God showed me that for the, and I had been a Christian for years and years. And my wife had gotten into trouble medically. She was dying. Uh, and this is 10 years ago, something like that. And I was sitting out in my truck, weeping in the parking lot of the hospital. Stacy was going into emergency surgery. When the surgeon opened her up, he called for another surgeon. There was so much wrong. And, and, and she was. She was within a day of being done. Um, sometimes she regrets that because <laughs> she'd like to be in heaven. But my point is I'm sitting in my truck and, and I'm praying, Lord, I just get, you know, and I was just, I, I, I was not settled. I, I was fractured. I was in that place that I'm talking about. And the Lord spoke to my heart so profoundly. He said, you know, John, you're asking me for peace according to your understanding. Yeah, she's in a bad way. And if I give you peace on that basis, you want to know what you're going to do? You're just going to argue with me because it's according to my understanding. And he's, he's again, he, it was so clear. He said, just receive my peace. And I'll tell you that settledness, I, and, and I essentially in my prayer, it was just a prayer and this thing going back and forth well, Lord, I think I can do that. I think I just receive it. and Stop thinking about it. That's the peace that passes understanding that's being talked about in the book of Philippians. It's a beautiful, glorious peace. Do we always have it? No. Things hit us, things knock us off our pins, and yet he makes that available to us, and it's a function of his grace. Grace and peace, they go together on purpose. That's part of why you cannot have peace and still be a Christian. And yet it's God's will that we come to that settledness to know that what he offers us is above our circumstances, that we can live well. I've told people many times over the years, I I can't affect your circumstances, but I can show you through the word of God, by the grace of God, how to live well within them. And that's part of what sets us apart from the world. He says, from God our Father. This is unique. You remember when Jesus, people had been scandalized. When Jesus was walking the earth, when he would pray, he would look up towards heaven with his eyes open and say, Dad? I mean, scandal. I mean, They never did that. Jews didn't do that. I mean, you didn't even pronounce his name. It was too holy to say. And Jesus, I mean, he just blew through all of their traditions. And yet he introduced this concept of the Father heart of God? And it's carried out here, he says, from God our Father here. Um, And the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. Again, scandalous in the first century, yeah, but this is a whole new deal. Again, a function of his grace that he calls us to be a family. And that's the point. In verse 5, he'll talk about our adoption as sons and daughters. We are a family, folks. How do you think a room full of people like us from so many different walks of life with so many different ideas and opinions and attitudes and all of that, how can we come together as one body and actually really like being around each other? I know some of you are laughing, but it's true. It's part of walking in grace. It's part of what he calls us to as a family. Do families have problems? Yes, sometimes. But they're always a family, aren't they? When we get into now into to chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, uh, I mentioned before in the original language, this is one long sentence. Uh, it's a doxology. The word doxology it it, it it comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory or splendor or grandeur, and logos. We know what that is: oral or written expression. So this is a a, a grand, a glorious expression. It, it's some look at it as as a, a piece of music even, uh, but it's a form of worship which describes God's eternal purposes for man. And a common doxology, you guys, if you came from a denominational setting, especially uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow, you know, a lot of times in liturgical services, they'll end with that. It's the doxology. It's a form of praise. Breaking it down, there are three stanzas or three sections in this one statement, all right? And they form a sweet picture of God's goodness, uh, the first stanza or uh, section is in verses 3 through 6. It declares the will of the Father, and it looks to the past. We're going to talk about that more. The second is in verses 7 through 12, and it celebrates the work of the Son looking at His present work. And that applies to us as well. The third uh, section or stanza uh, is in verses 13 and 14, where he proclaims the witness of the spirit looking to the future because the Holy spirit is the down payment that we have. He calls him the earnest, right? Like when you buy a house, you give an earnest money, do you make an earnest money agreement? It's a down payment on you're you're stating your intention to purchase that house. We are the purchase possession. The Holy spirit in this context is the one who is the down payment that we have here on what we get there. And, he, and, and it's a beautiful expression, and that's in verses 13 and 14. So interestingly enough, each one of these stanzas, if you look at it musically, ends with a statement or a refrain to the praise of his glory. All three. Uh, today we're going to look at, at the first stanza in uh, verses 3 through 6. The will of the Father, and we're gonna, and it looks to the past. Verse three, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us, verse five, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. There's His will again. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the beloved. Next week, as, as I mentioned, the work of the Son, and after that, the witness of the Spirit. All of this, this whole doxology, this whole sentence, paints a beautiful composite picture of the Trinity. And it's important that we have a good understanding of the fact that God is manifest in three persons, one God, one essence, but three distinct persons. It's foundational to our understanding of the Christian faith. Uh, It's crucial to our understanding of what God is like, to our understanding of how God relates to us and how we relate to God. Uh, Essentially, a, a short version of the doctrine of the Trinity is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or stated differently, God is one in essence and three in person. Don't try to figure out how that works. I'm telling you, I've been a Christian for 30 whatever years, and that will remain a mystery until I get there. He's God. That we don't understand it. That we can't parse through it. We have finite brains. He's infinite. And so when you, in a finite frame, bump up against infinite terms like this, one word is going to be the result. You know what that is? Mystery. It's a mystery. And that's why I say, don't try to figure it out. You will pop circuit breakers, smoke will start coming out of your ears, and you'll just walk away going, "Ah." And I just learned a long time ago, leave that understanding of that, comprehensive understanding of that on the table. At some point when I'm in eternity, I'll probably have a better idea than I do now. What's important is that it's clearly taught. Jesus represented that. It's represented in the letters. And it is a clear doctrine for the Christian church. It's a major doctrine. When people, I came out of the LDS church. When I was a Mormon, there was double talk. They said, oh yeah, yeah, we're Trinitarian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in the preamble to their, their version of the King James Bible, it would say that we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, great, Trinity. When I read it a little more, I said, one in purpose, but not in person. Uh, okay, well, there's the fine print. And, and, and so there's a lot of deception out there, folks. Understand, this is, this is central stuff. You separate that from the person of Christ and you've got another gospel. You've got a whole different message It's all about the person and the work. It's very, very important that we hang on to that. We understand that. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with, we call it the Beatitudes. I'm glad they're not do-attitudes, they're be-attitudes. And he says, blessed... Are those who are poor in spirit blessed? Are those who mourn? He goes on and on. There's a progression there, and it really paints a beautiful picture of the Christian life. I'm not going to go there, but the word there is makarios, okay, the Greek word, and what it means is happy. Or oh, how happy! Oh how! Oh how happy are are the poor in spirit! Oh how happy are those who mourn? They see their spiritual condition and they understand, and so on. This is a different word when he talks about blessed in verse three. It's eulogitos. And what it means literally is to speak well of someone's character to praise. So when you eulogize someone, when I do a memorial service, when I officiated a memorial service, a funeral for someone, I eulogize. And and it basically is going back and looking at this person's life, and you're drawing out the points of of that person's life, and, and you're speaking of their character and all of that. That's what this word means. And what he's doing when he says, Bless me, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is lifting God up. He's saying, I want you to see this God, this Father that we have. Why? Because, again, past tense, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The idea is all the blessings that we have are because we are in Christ. That's his point here. Ephesians 2.4, we'll get to that Someday. Um says we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Alright? And so when he talks about seated in the Bible, you look at if somebody's seated, that means it's done. The work is complete. If they're standing, not so much. Remember in Hebrews, we talked about the temple. There were no seats, there were no chairs at the temple. They stood because the work was never done. And then we see Jesus. Accomplishing the work of redemption, sitting down. All right. So when he's talking about that, when we're seated in heavenly places in Christ, it's because the work is done. He's saying, past tense, the work is done. You don't have to do anything. You have to come to faith. You have to believe the stuff. And it should be a settledness in your heart, in your life. And as a result of that, you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. That's his point. You know, as I was studying this, I was thinking, you know, these Ephesians, uh, the pardon me, the people in Ephesus, there was a lot of persecution going on. We looked at that in in detail in Hebrews when we were there. There was a lot going on. These people didn't have easy lives. Very often their testimony of Christ led to real problems. I mean, the Romans were starting to make a habit out of using the arena for... interesting games, including Christians being used with the animals and all of that. And what he's trying to tell these people is, look, don't look at your circumstances. Understand that you are blessed beyond measure, that you are completely blessed, that the the transaction that's taken place that adds you to the family of God is amazing. As I am studying... In the last couple of days, I, I found myself just kind of kicking back in my office chair, and, and I have a study there, and, 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 and I would just start to dwell on these truths. And I would just found that worship was welling up in my heart. I just excited about getting here this morning to share this and to sort of unpack this passage and, and try to do it a little bit of justice. And I just found myself to say, like Paul does here, I would just start to worship. And to say, "Oh Lord, I just love you so much. You have done so much, and and furnished the whole thing. And you simply beckon us to come, and, and to receive your love, to receive your grace, to understand. There's no way we could do this ourselves. And, and I would invite you. Do you do you ever sit back and just think about the goodness of God? Do, does it? If you read this letter, it, you'll see." How many times the Apostle Paul's doing that? He will go along and pretty soon you realize he's just broken into prayer. He's just broken into praise. He starts to worship it. He's right in the middle of this. For this reason, I bow before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth gets its name further on. I mean, he does that. It's a pattern here because he understands that what he he is talking about is are things that are so precious There are things that that it's so important that get into the hearts and minds of God's people that we be encouraged even when we're facing tough circumstances. It's about his grace. It's about his goodness. It's about his love. It's about the will of our father that goes back. Verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul boldly states this without reservation, without hesitation, and without an argument. <laughs> this is a controversial doctrine in the Christian church. What do you mean predestined? Oh my goodness. It, no, he he's saying, hey, I, God is saying, I chose you out from everybody else before the world was formed. Don't worry about it. I know what I'm doing. All right. We're chosen, chosen out from in verse four and predestined to in verse five. That's why I read those together because it's not just from. There's a two. It, it, we're called out of this world. God predestined us. He knew that we were going to choose Christ before we did. And he predestined us to the adoption of sons, to being part of his kingdom. This is not a seminary argument here. This is not, and, and I'll tell you what, folks, down through the ages, theologians have grappled with this, this very topic. It's not meant that way. It's meant to illustrate that God knows what he's doing and he sets apart a people for himself. He knows what we're going to choose before we choose it. Does that mean that we don't have a free will? Absolutely not. But that wasn't the point of what he's writing here. This is not, again, it's not for a seminary student. It's for a congregation. It's for you and I. It's for sheep. It's for me. In Romans chapter 8, I've used this passage many times. He says, and we know in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 tells us what that purpose is. For whom he foreknew, knew ahead of time, he also predestined, that's your destiny, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Let's have a theological argument about it? It's not the point. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what the whole point of it is. So what do we say to these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? My life was marked out before the foundations of the world. He knew I would choose him. It's supposed to be a consolation, folks. He's bringing strong consolation to the people in Ephesus, and he brings strong consolation to us. We should be encouraged and consoled by these words, not find fodder for an argument. We should be blown away. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's a revelation. In verse 17 here, well, in verse 15, Paul breaks into a prayer. In verse 17, he says that he's asking that God would give to you, to the Ephesians, to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the context of this. I came across an interesting quote from a guy that I like to uh, study. He says, you are not going to hack down this redwood tree and drag it into your own fireplace. When he's talking about the majestic doctrine of predestination, you're just not going to hack it down and put it in your fireplace. It's too big. It's too big. Understand, people have argued about it for centuries this is a settled issue for Paul. He doesn't say, well, let me let me explain this to you. It's settled. The point is it's not something we take hold of by human intellect. It's something we take hold of by revelation. There's a difference. For Christians, it's a wonderful consolation. Now, I'm, I'm going to read something here. I don't want us to be confused with the doctrine of unconditional election. There is... Some bad food out there, and, and uh, again, it's balance. And this is a big doctrine for Reformed theology, and and there's a balance. I'll get to that, but just hang with me. In Reformed theology, unconditional election is considered to be one of the, one aspect of predestination, in which God chooses only certain individuals to be saved. Those elect receive mercy, while those not elected, the reprobates, receive justice or judgment without condition. That view leaves no room for man having a free moral agency. And it paints paints God in a loveless light. There are two sides to this. Do you choose Christ? Yes, you do. Or not. Are you predestined? Yeah. Yeah uh In second Peter chapter three, Peter says, the lord's not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but his long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance that's the other side. he's not willing that any would perish, so if it's this limited atonement, if it's you're predestining, you have no choice in the matter, he couldn't say this. And there are plenty of other passages. I just don't want to spend a lot of time there. But what he's saying is this. If you belong to Jesus, God chose you out from among others for himself in love. All right? It's an endearing thing that Paul is getting at here. He's talking about God's will as it's been worked out in the past. And, and, and as you sit here today, as he, he's appealing to these Ephesians, as they sat there reading this letter, it should have been a great encouragement to them to know that if they have chosen Christ, that they were His. And Jesus said, those that you've given me, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you might say, that's not fair. What if I'm not elect? Well, here in a few minutes, we're going to receive communion. I'll give you an opportunity to fix that. What if I don't? What if you never choose Christ? Then you're not elect. Period. Sobering. You must give your life to Christ. Eternity hangs on how you respond to Jesus Christ. He offers his love. He offers you eternity on a platter. Having done all of the work, you simply say, I'll take it. He extends it. You have to take it. You have to receive Christ. You turn from the old life. Say, Lord, I've had it trying to work this out and live for myself. And you, and you receive Him. And He'll give you a new life. He'll give you a new nature. This is a beautiful transaction, and it's deadly serious. If you never choose Him, you don't make it. It's about voluntarily not being predestined to, I can't help it, but being predestined to be His son or daughter. And if you want to know if you're predestined, then choose Him. It's very simple. What he's saying is God knows us and has known us from before the worlds were formed. Jesus, is we're told in the book of Revelation that he is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Yeah, that was predestined too. The point and context is if you belong to Jesus, he's not disappointed that you blew it this last week. And what Paul's getting at here is that he picked you anyway. You haven't let him down. If you walk around, if you're one of those people who walks around with a little dark cloud over your head, I never measure up. I can't do it right. I just, I just, I just, I just can't, I said that wrong thing or I did that wrong thing or I it? you get all tied up in knots. This is for you. You can rest in the finished work of Christ. You can rest in the work of the Holy Spirit on your behalf. He's called the Comforter as well. And he brings great comfort to those that belong to Christ. You weren't chosen in Christ because of your own merit. You are chosen because of his. He says that we should not be, not because we are, holy and without blame, or that we should be holy and without blame. Not because we are. This is a, a fascinating statement uh, before him in love. Um, When he says holy and without blame before him in love, the word before there, it's the word kate en opion. And I'm not going to give you, well, a little bit of a Greek lesson, but uh, the word kate means down. En means in and opion means to look. The statement it actually forbids criticism because it's coupled with agape love. When He says before him in love, uh, it, it see, and that sees nothing wrong. He's talking about, again, in context, the grace of God. Here's what's being said, literally being said in that statement. He chose you out from among others for himself in Christ before the worlds were formed so that you might be holy and without blemish as he looks down into your life with joy and love with no criticism. That's the grace of God at work, in the life, in the heart of a believer. He sees you in Christ, not your performance. From birth, we are taught performance-based acceptance. You know, potty training, you you go in the toilet, you get an M&M. I mean, from that forward... Okay, well, sometimes it was a raisin. But the point is is that it's I do something, I get a reward. And, and he says, no, 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 you don't do anything. And you get all of this. He's talking about our inheritance in Christ. Of course our lives should evidence what it is to be set apart. And... and this epistle gave great instruction. As we go through it, we're going to get a ton, a load of instruction on what that looks like and how to apply God's word to our lives. But maturity is, is it's not about license. Well, how much can I get away with and still be? A, no, no, it's not about that. Maturity is, it's about grace and understanding that his grace is extended, covering my life, inexhaustible supply. I cannot out the grace of God as a child of his. That's why in being predestined predestined to be uh, adopted sons and daughters, the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, Papa, as Jesus would say. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. (sighs) Do you ever sit there and think about that? If you belong to Christ, that you are accepted in the beloved how do you see your relationship with God? Do you see him as exacting, demanding, rigid, walking around with a two-by-four waiting for you to get out of line? That's not the God of the Bible. If you're one of those people that walks around thinking you'll never measure up, join the club. (laughs) The reason that Jesus did all of the work for us is because there's no comprehensible way that any of us could measure up. The opposite of that is, do you see yourself cracks, warts, failings, all of it as accepted in the beloved? That's great news. The word gospel means good news. This is phenomenal news. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you as perfect, spotless, blameless. Not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. We're going to look at the work of the Son and the witness of the Spirit next time around. We're out of time, but we're going to take a few minutes. Allow me to run over a couple of minutes here. We're going to receive communion. So if the guys would come up and pass out the elements, uh, then I just want to...